Welcome to The Portable Pastor, a podcast of relevant biblical teaching, linking ancient truth with today's challenges. Each week, Pastor Mike will share God's Word to help you and remind you that God is pro-you. So download the outline from fbcclover.life and get ready to hear today's teaching. Here's Pastor Mike. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks for joining the podcast again today. We've been looking at the uh, doctrine of eschatology or the uh, the end times, and we've looked at a couple of things. Two weeks ago, we started this topic together, and we we looked at the rapture. We learned that Jesus will rapture His church. We also learned that the timing of that rapture is is imminent. It could happen at any time, but the exact date, of course, is unknown. Now, I've challenged you to examine and believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. I gave you multiple reasons, but the most compelling of the ones that I gave you are as follows. The, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit will be taken from the earth during the tribulation, and how will Christians function without Him? Secondly, if the church endures the wrath of God like everyone else, just like the rest of mankind, then the wrath placed on, on Jesus wasn't enough to fulfill the the wrath of of God, you know? And Jesus was wrong in saying it is finished because obviously if there's more wrath to be poured out, it's not finished. But the most compelling reason is found in Revelation 3.10, which says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world and uh, to try those who dwell on the earth. That's the most compelling reason for a pre-tribulation view of the rapture. Then last week we looked at the tribulation. We looked at all the seals and the trumpets and the bold judgments that are listed in Revelation. And each of those sets has seven parts of prophetic warnings we, we learned the 21 awful events that are listed there. Uh, God's going to allow those to happen to creation with man being the most, uh, the, the primary recipient of God's wrath. We heard about the four horsemen during the opening of the seals and the 200 million demonic horsemen near the halfway point who will take, uh, take over the world and, and murder literally billions of people. We heard about millions of people who will come to Christ during the tribulation and they'll be they'll <clears throat> excuse me they'll be martyred for their faith. We learned about the antichrist last week and his abomination of desolation that he's going to set up in the temple and demand that it be worshiped. We learned of the earthquakes and the animal attacks and the, the celestial uh, celestial uh, pummeling of of the earth. Well I mean, horrible times are ahead for those who are not raptured with the church. And so far, we, we've discussed this prophetic timetable right up until the return of Christ to the earth. And, and I hope that you are settled on what we learn. The rapture is for the church. The church and the Holy Spirit will be taken from the earth and carried away to heaven to enjoy that place that's prepared for us. And we will wait for the time of Christ's return to set up his kingdom on the earth. So the time of the church on earth will be over at the rapture. But during that following seven-year period, there is a great time of tribulation in store for the world. God will pour out his wrath on the earth during those seven years. And he will yet 
He will still focus his full attention on Israel, as you know Daniel foretold in the 70th week uh, prophecy. So today, I want to examine what happens at the end of that seven-year period. I know I left you hanging last week at the end of Revelation chapter 18, and I want us to pick up where we left off. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn, turn to Revelation 19. If not, just, just listen along. So in Revelation 19... John describes the scene in heaven where the kingdom of the Antichrist um, falls. You know, he, he's going to fall from there. And in, and in verses 1 through 5, a great moment of, of worship is described. Now read along in Revelation 19.1. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For he judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from, from her goes up forever and ever. Verse 4, And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So what John is describing here is, is a great revelry, <laughs> revelry in the, in the citizenship of, of heaven. The wicked force that, that had ruled the world, that had killed billions, has been called into account and is found wanting. Babylon is destroyed. Now, that heavenly party is going to quickly turn to uh, to worship, right? So they're they're gonna they're gonna bow down before him. They're gonna worship the one who accomplished this feat. In, in beginning in verse five, the marriage supper of the Lamb is announced. It, it's not real clear whether that happens in heaven or if it's just announced in heaven and is is made ready on earth. But but let's just focus on the return of Christ as stated in verses eleven and following. Then I saw heaven opened, and a white and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness and he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has the name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Man, I get so excited about this. The heavens will open. Jesus will be seen riding a white horse. And we know this is Jesus because of the names given to the rider. He's called faithful and true. Well, you know, that definitely describes his, his character. But the more compelling evidence is that he's referred to as the word of God. Remember what John wrote in, in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. He is, he is referred to as the word. And so we know this is Jesus on this horse. It is Jesus. And he will show up for the world to see with those fiery eyes that can pierce man's life and, and see clearly what judgment needs to be made, that there's many gems in his crown, and he has a name which not has it's not even been told yet, and, and his robe is going to be drip, dripped in blood or dipped in blood. Either, 
either the blood of his past enemies that he's fought or it's the blood of the martyrs that he will avenge. Either way, he will be completely intimidating standing there. I I can just hear him because I have this kind of uh, wrestling background. I can just hear him. He says, you're looking at the gold sash wearing, woo, jeweled crown wearing, woo, church stealing, woo, judgment dealing, woo, white horse riding son of God. And I'm having a hard time keeping these alligators down. Give me two claps and a Ric Flair. Woo! I'm telling you, I get a little little pumped up about this. All right, we continue in verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, who are these armies of heaven? Now, it's generally thought that this army is, is made up of of all the Old Testament saints, the church, the tribulation saints, and the angels. That's everyone who's on his side. Heaven will be empty. There'll be no one there. So when we when we arrive with him looking uh you know in in our looking right in our unstained uh white fine robes hardly that's hardly the battle gear that we may have been wanting but understand that we're not dressed for battle we're not because we we will not be fighting in this battle only Jesus and his angels some of his angels not even all of them are going to fight in this battle in fact throughout this passage we we only you know we're, we're only mentioned in in this verse the rest is all Jesus. It, look at verse 15 and 16. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of the Lord God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The sword is going to come from his mouth. That's a metaphor. It just means that the very words of Jesus will win the battle. And that makes sense. Look at verse John or John 1 again, where Jesus was described. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And listen to this. He was in the beginning. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. How was creation made? Well, Genesis 1 tells us that the Creator spoke everything into being. Of course, Jesus is going to be able to destroy his enemies with just a word. He spoke them into being with just a word. So the Bible says when he arrives, he will tread the winepress of the wrath of God. In other words, God's wrath is already there. It's already heaped up. It's piled up on top of mankind. And Jesus will press it onto humanity. And he will press the life right out of his enemies. He will wear a banner while doing all this. And that banner is going to say, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the sash that, that that's on, that's not some cute or stylish identifier. It means that Jesus has the complete sovereignty to do what he wants with the people of the world. If kings and lords have power, he has more. Now continue in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all, both free and slave, both small and great. It's everyone. Verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on a horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was on, I'm sorry, the false prophet 
who in his, in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is an absolute horrific scene. It's, I guess, pretty telling that I'm sharing this towards the end of, of October when we're used to all this gory stuff, right? Well, can you, can you recall some of those medieval war movies that were on TV? Maybe you've seen some of those where the two sides, they line up for war and they're yelling things back at one another. You know, uh, they're, they're casting uh, dispersions and warnings and, and, and just, just talking bad about one another to intimidate one another. This is exactly how I see this angel that was mentioned standing in the sun. I, 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 don't, understand, I, I don't understand exactly what that means, but I don't think it means he's literally standing in the sun. I think that he's, he's bright, he's, he's, he's visible to all. Well, every one of Christ's opponents will hear him call that they're going to call in the vultures and the scavenger birds because they're be they're they're about to be presented a meal like none other. Kings, captains, soldiers, horsemen—they're all on the menu. But before the meal of the birds begins, the beast and the false prophet are captured and thrown into the lake of fire. Now, not the bottomless pit that that will be opened a thousand years later, and that, that's just reserved for Satan. No, the beast and the false prophet, their time is done. They are thrown into the lake of fire. Remember the, the unholy trinity that I mentioned last week, the group that includes the dragon, which is Satan, the beast, who is the Antichrist, and the false prophet, who is the influential uh, sorcerer kind of person who persuades the world to take the mark of the beast. Well, right here, it says that Satan will lose his two highest officials before the battle even begins. They will be thrown into the lake of fire, which, by the way, Satan knows is his ultimate destiny as well. Well, Jesus then destroys the rest of the armies that have lined up against him with a word, just as he promised, as a word, and just as he promised, the birds feast on the carnage. Look at verse uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So Satan, after this battle, you know, Jesus speaks the word, everyone falls dead, and Satan's just standing there. He's just standing there. I bet he looks like a wolf pup. I bet he's embarrassed and has that little pointed tail tucking up between his legs. He's just gonna stand there alone, dejected. I think he's gonna look like Ralphie standing there on the on the uh, the stoop of the, the steps in that ridiculous pink bunny costume. All of his armies are dead. His closest allies, the, the biggest ones that he leans on, are in the lake of fire. He is completely alone. And I think he stands there as this powerful angel swoops down, seizes him, and locks him up in a place where he can't influence anyone for another thousand years. He's literally the phenomenal cosmic power in a little bitty living space. 
This is just not his day. This is the day of Christ. Can you see how different this day is compared to the first time Jesus came? You have to see this. He came as a babe in a manger the first time. He's coming as a warrior on a horse the second. He came uh, needing to be protected by the angels the first time. And the second time, he's going to lead those angels into battle. The third time, or the the first time he came at his birth, he came and he, and he rested and, and slept in swaddling clothes. Next time he's coming and riding into battle with a, 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 a blood-soaked robe. He came as a lamb. He's coming as a lion. He came to die. He's coming to reign. The first time they didn't know who he was. The next time everyone will see him and know that he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Man, what a difference. Likewise, can you see how different the description of, of the return of Christ is from the description of the rapture? In an article, What is the Difference Between the Rapture and the Second Coming? GotQuestions.org lists five differences between the rapture and the second coming. This is what they say. At the raptures, believers meet the Lord in the air, but at the second coming, believers return with the Lord to the earth. The second coming occurs after the great and terrible tribulation and the rapture occurs before the tribulation. Number three, the rapture is the removal of of believers from the earth as an act of deliverance. But the second coming includes the removal of unbelievers from the earth as an act of judgment. Number four, the rapture will be secret and instant, but the second coming will be visible to all. Number five, and finally, the the second coming of Christ will not occur until after certain end-time events take place. But the rapture is imminent. It could take place at any moment. The rapture and the second coming are two very different events. Now, to to be honest, and I'm always brutally honest with you guys, the struggle that theologians have, the struggle that many preachers have, is that we are we're trying to figure out to which event each prophetic passage refers. And honestly, that can be difficult. Well, I mean, I know there's there's you know forewarning merit in in digging into symbolism, you know, defining the metaphoric language and applying each passage to its prophetic timeline. Those things just aren't as high on our priority list, or at least they shouldn't be, as warning the lost of their need to be saved and preparing for the rapture. Understanding the events of the tribulation and trying to figure out when Jesus will fulfill the promise of his, you know, his second coming is just not as important as sharing the gospel and keeping our eyes open for the rapture. Concerning the, the timing of his return, we just don't need to know that. We just wait for him to say, let's go, and we return with him. Now, I I know your question. Other than, you know, this is your question. Other than brushing up on on general horsemanship or increasing my battle horse riding abilities or or possibly even perfecting my bow staff skills, what am I to do with this information of his second coming and coming with him? I I would say first and foremost to you, you should be thankful that you're going to be looking down on the battlefield instead of looking up at the coming army of of Jesus. Man, you better be thankful you are looking down instead of up at that force coming. We Christians, we're on the right side of the battle. Now, Now, don't get cocky. Don't get cocky. When looking at the opposite side, we must remind ourselves, but by the grace of God, there go I. And that should push us, by the way, to to, um, share the gospel. 
But but we you know we could be fighting with him if he hadn't saved us. So we have to be thankful. Let that gratitude motivate motivate you to serve him well. Secondly, I would tell you, you know, breathe easy. Breathe easy in the knowledge of our our part of this end time saga. We're not responsible for figuring out the timing of the rapture. There's no need to unravel all the passages about the tribulation because we will not be here to experience it. And we will not go through kind of a a spiritual boot camp to be ready to fight the enemies of the Lord because He's not even going to need us. The truth of these three things gives us new meaning to the words taught in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. The only task now that we have are the tasks that we've always had as His people. We love God, we love people, we make disciples. And except for the fact that we we should yearn for His rapture, the mission statement of, of the church really is all that we are responsible to accomplish. Loving God, loving people, making disciples. And let me just ask you a very important question today. Are you ready for the rapture? Or are you scared thinking of the the second coming of Christ. You can be ready for the rapture by committing your life to Him right now, by joining His global church, not a uh, walking down an aisle of a church. I'm talking about joining His group of people who love and serve Him. So if that is you, would, would you just pray with me? Dear God, I know that I've been against you. I've done my thing and not yours. I've sinned. Would you forgive my sin? I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that that He sent you to die on the cross for me, Jesus. And I'm accepting that gift. Please save me and include me in the rapture. And I will live to my very best glorifying your name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you prayed that prayer, your name has been written in the book of life. You've heard me say this before. You will enter into his his place that he's prepared for all of those who have given themselves to him and accepted the free gift of salvation. And you will be raptured with the church and return with him to see him slay his enemies and then reign with him for a thousand years in the new millennial kingdom. And we're going to talk about that kingdom uh, next week. So I hope that you tune back in. Until then, have a great week. Uh, uh, email me if you if you have a question or you just want to tell me something, mike at fbcclover.com. I'll be glad to uh, research any kind of uh, question that you might have. But until we, we, we're back together in the podcast next week, have a great week. And remember, God is pro you. Thanks for listening to the Portable Pastor Podcast. Pastor Mike serves as pastor at the First Baptist Church in Clover, South Carolina. FBC Clover is a church that focuses on loving God, loving people, and making disciples. For more information about our church and our ministries, or to make an online donation, go to fbcclover.com or email us at fbcclover at gmail.com. Until next time. Be blessed. And remember, God is pro-you.